Welcome to the Grand Conversation, the Machon Siach Podcast. Machon Siach at SAR High School, honoring the memory of Velda K. Lindenbaum, Zichron Alevracha, is the research arm of SAR High School, where faculty bridge theory and practice on matters of Jewish education, curriculum, and culture. The Grand Conversation Podcast features the fellows of Machon Siach discussing their research. I'm your host, Shmuel Hain, Rosh Beit Midrash at SAR High School, and co-director of Machon Siach, our producer is the immortal Rabbi Avi Bloom, Director of Technology at SAR High School. For today's Grand Conversation podcast, we are thrilled to speak with Rabbi Natty Helfgott. Rabbi Helfgott is the chair of SAR High School's Torah Shabbat Ped Department, where he teaches both Gemara and Tanakh. And Rabbi Helfgott is also the rabbi of Nitivot Shalom in Tinek. We are recording this with masks, distance of course, so please excuse some of the muffled talk. This is the last of our podcasts for 2020. And we are excited to present this in conjunction with our December issue of Inside the Conversation, which features Rabbi Helfgott's research paper, Theological Perspectives on Homosexuality in Contemporary Orthodox Thought. Good afternoon, Natty, and welcome to the Grand Conversation. Thank you, Rabbi Hain. Thank you, my good friend Shmuel. And it's a pleasure to be here and share some thoughts together with you. Great. So let's get right into it. I want to know what was the process that you went through choosing this particular topic for Machon Siach research. Why specifically theological perspectives on homosexuality? How did you arrive at this particular topic at this moment? Um, over the course of the last decade, I felt that there's been a lot of discussion, a lot of writing about uh, the practical issues of how do we integrate uh, gay Jews into our communities, into our synagogues, into our schools, uh, into our camps. And a lot of it has been very technical about uh, inclusivity, uh, and very little thought has been uh, given to some of the theological problems, uh, issues, uh, dilemmas that uh, people face, both gay Jews as well as Jews who are straight, and in dealing with the phenomenon and the reality. And I thought this was an area to explore and, ex and examine. Uh, also, from an educational point of view, over the course of many, many years, Kids have asked me questions about that, you know, given the fact that there are uh, many kids, adults in our community who have come out and are um, and identify as gay. How do we um, approach that phenomenon in terms of our perception of God and the creation of the world and the purpose and mitzvot? So I thought it was important to, to at least look into it. Great. So the paper surveys a number of approaches or perspectives to the issue of homosexuality. And in the paper, you reference the statement of principles that you co-authored some 10 years ago um, and which serves as kind of uh, a gateway into this, into this topic. So before we discuss the different perspectives, I wanted you to share with us how that statement of principles came about. Was it your idea and who did you consult with at that time uh, in coming up with that statement of principles? So, um, as I think many of our listeners know, during the course of the first decade of the, two, of the 2000s, uh, I think there was a lot more discussion about the reality of, of Jews who are gay within our Orthodox community. Um, there was a film, Trembling Before God, that got a lot of press and discussion. Uh, Rabbi Chaim Rappaport wrote a book about it in England. And I think more and more of us recognized that this was a reality. We talked to students, uh, high school students, college students, former students, and we were confronted with this reality. 
Um, and there was more and more discussion of it, often below the surface, but it was real. Uh, in 2010, the beginning of 2010, there was a panel uh, sponsored by Wurzweiler School of Social Work at Yeshiva University, which became a very big discussion point. I was and, there, <laughs> little known fact. Right. And one of the things that was to me very troubling was that, so to speak, the uh, establishment official response of the entire Orthodox community was extremely negative to even discussing the issues of how we integrate uh, gay Jews into uh, our community. And there was a lot of rhetoric which was very much, I felt, over the top, as well as it was unnuanced. It was very black and white. And uh, I spoke with a number of dear friends of mine, Rabbi Yitzi Blau, who's a Rosh Hashiva in Israel, Yeshiva Oraita, and Rabbi Robert Clapper, Ari Clapper, uh, who's an, uh, an educator as well as a, fi- a, fa- um, a very big Talmud Chacham, like Rabbi Blau. And we also shared this same sense, and we started to talk about could we get a consensus document across uh, parts of the Orthodox community which would address the question in a nuanced, balanced, thoughtful way rather than knee-jerk reactions and talk about how do we see the role and the place of Jews with a homosexual orientation in our community, and would that have a more positive effect and bring better discussion more nuanced discussion about the reality on the ground. So at that time, who was who were you consulting with? Did you speak with those former students? Did you vet it with anybody? Yeah. We um I spoke with a whole range of um of 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 people, of rabbanim, of psychologists, of sociologists, of Jews who were um, who came out and were gay, people who were on that panel, as well as others who did not come out, uh, closeted. I spoke to a whole range of people and asked for their input, various drafts we sent to many, many people. In the end, we had hundreds of people sign it, but there were, in the initial, I spoke to many, many people, uh, as I said, across the board, including many uh, who identified as gay. And, what and th- we're still wanted to remain part of the Orthodox community, which I think is an important. There were many who have left the Orthodox community and who had no interest, but there were people who felt very important about it. So in a certain sense, this paper is the theological um, background Correct. for that statement of principles. In or- a certain sense, or, you know, on a certain way, I, I, I mean, I didn't think about, I wasn't thinking so much in theological terms in those years. Uh, but as the years went on, I found myself, because I think that, thank God, many in the modern Orthodox community have basically, whether they, uh, you know, signed on to every jot and tittle in the document, I think that most of our modern Orthodox communities have become um, more inclusive um, of the of, of Jews who identify as gay. Um, and I think a lot of the practical issues beyond, there's still many practical issues that have to be addressed. But I think that many of those issues have moved on. Um, and But the theological issues are, are ones that we, I think many of us still struggle with. And how do we uh, approach our, you know, uh, our, our belief in a good, loving God uh, with, at the same time, the explicit formulations, prohibitions in the Torah, and at the same time, seeing our friends, our family, our students, who we want to be part of the community and have to... and, and and their pain and their suffering, and at the same time, our commitment to the tradition. So, yeah. Putting that all together. Uh, so I also think it's interesting just to think about those 10 years and how 
rapidly <laughs> the community has moved on the pastoral or practical inclusive issues that you talked about, uh, at least certain segments of the community. Right. I think there are many uh, sectors of the Orthodox community, even the centrist Orthodox or modern Orthodox community, where it's still very much a challenge uh, for people to come out and to be accepted by family, by by shuls, by schools. But I think in much of the modern Orthodox yeshiva high school world and the shuls that uh, that are connected with that world, it has become much more uh, commonly accepted. And the questions have very quickly moved on to, to other ways in exactly. which we can be more active in our in our expressing acceptance, you know, mazel tov announcements. Right. So I feel like looking back at your statement of principles, it's remarkable how far yeah. and how quickly this change has happened. Yes. I mean, just think about American society in general. You know, in 2010, when we published it, you know, President Obama expressed explicitly before the election in 2012, he was opposed to gay marriage explicitly. And that was a, you know, it was really far out in the secular American political world to talk about gay marriage. Only a few years later, it's the law of the land. And many other countries throughout the Western world have accepted it. So there's been a rapid change in the sociological landscape. Now, in the Jewish landscape, it hasn't affected, but it certainly has an impact in the way people perceive as, you know, like you said, many of the things are kind of in the, in the, in the rear view mirror. And now there are new issues to discuss, including can we create gay marriage within the modern Orthodox community, which itself is a, you know, something we never even thought about in 2010. Again, I'm not saying, I'm not here to, to put down any markers about that, but as you said, there, you know, it's kind of moved on very quickly. And so I wonder if, if uh, the theological perspectives uh, as a companion piece to the Statement of Principles, when the Statement of Principles piece also needs constant updating. Right. It's, it's wild to think about. Right. Um, I want to just push on one point in the paper, which is kind of a, a grounding assumption and connects to this conversation we just had. You quote there an educator, I believe it's Rabbi Ari Siegel, who articulates that this, that homosexuality is the, the crisis of faith question for many of his students and many of the people that he interacts with. And I, I, part of the, the, the exploration of 2010 versus 2020 is whether you still see today this as that big challenge, or maybe because of social orthodoxy, or because they're less concerned about the binding nature of halacha, or the increased acceptance of gays in the Orthodox community makes it just easier for gay Jews to stay within our orbit and decreases some of the theological pressure that goes into it. I'm just not sure if the theological question is as prominent as it was even a few years ago, and I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. So right. I'd like your take on that. Right. So, you know, one thing I would say is I think we need to distinguish between uh, as you said, the burningness of the issue right now in the minds of young, you know, of youngsters, of t teenagers, as well as young college students as at the forefront of their discussion. 
as kind of what do they come to the table with? And second of all, is it a theological problem in and of itself that we have to confront irrespective of that's what they necessarily it's articulated? You know, so, right, the problem of good and evil <laughs> or the problem of a good God, a merciful God is an eternal problem that expresses itself throughout history in different ways. And it's more acute in certain times and other times. So I think that the, the eternal discussion, I think, has to continue. You may be correct that for some people, they've kind of moved on beyond that, given the paradoxical nature, the fact that the community is more welcoming means that, well, let's, that there's less of the theological, the, the, the gap is, is narrower, and therefore the concern about this or that is less, and therefore the theological problem is less acute. And so let's continue to work on the practical issues of inclusiveness. And maybe we can push certain rabbis who are already starting to talk about, you know, gay marriage and things like that, you know. So I agree with you about that, but I do think that ultimately it's still uh, an absolute question. And, and, and I do think that it is part of a broader question. And I think I hinted at that at the paper after I cited Rabbi Siegel that it is part of a larger question about egalitarianism and, and equality and God and how Judaism and the world as opposed to the hierarchies that, you know, were tradition, are part of the tradition. I think it is bigger part of a bigger question regarding women's issues and other issues. So I think it still has a, some resonance, but it may not be as the only acute issue. That's helpful because what we're talking about now, even if it's not as burning a question on the ground, that was the statement of principles and that was an important document right. for that time. And this is a little bit more of a timeless or eternal exactly. uh, kind of question and right. examination. Correct. That's really helpful, that, that distinction. And I, I think part of it speaks to progress that we've made in the sense that the, the pastoral pieces of this have made it possible for people to envision themselves as part of a community long term. And so that tension of, oh, you know, how are how are these two things right. uh, compatible is not as acute. Right. That's helpful. Right. So let's turn now to the paper. But again, I just wanted to add, just like with women's issues, even though there's been a tremendous amount of progress, they still continue to come to the fore. And the behind the scenes about, you know, the theological underpinnings of what is what is uh, the Torah's assumption about relationship between men and women? What is the relation? What is the role of women? How does God see equality? That still stays even after you've solved ninety percent of "quote unquote" you know the issues. Certainly. So let's turn now to the paper and uh, examine some of the perspectives that are there. And I encourage everyone to take a look at the paper and read it uh, because it's rich and it's a it's a survey, but it has great insight. Uh, and evaluations of, of each of these approaches. You begin in the paper with Ramosha Feinstein's view. Um, and I, I've been thinking about it since I read the paper about that choice to include it in your survey and, and about the question of at what point does something become counterproductive to include the view of such a prominent posake when it is so jarring and Part of that is the history, and part of that is who we think Ramosha was and is to us and how important a figure he is, and kind of making that decision to include it because of his prominence 
but also you don't mince your words about the difficulties with it. So right. maybe give us an overview of Ramosha's view and your thinking and including it and starting from there. Right. So Rav Moshe, in a certain sense, takes a very classical, traditional, religious view of all religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, that uh, basically homosexuality is unnatural. It's not something that anybody would have a desire for in a normal sense. Uh, the person who desires it is motivated by uh, evil and willingness to sin and simply to live an unfettered life. There's nothing... Uh, there's nothing uh, positive, it's all negative, and it's all coming from that kind of uh, Yetzer Hara, kind of evil inclination. And I included it for many reasons. Number one is, um, simply for the history, if I was going to do a survey of orthodox attitudes, I wanted to show what was the kind of the common belief and common assumptions that led to all kinds of conclusions about people and how they should be treated, and to show the evolution because I think it's more interesting even for me to show that it's not that Natty Helfgott may disagree with Rav Moshe, but that many prominent Rabbanim within the Haredi community and within the Orthodox community also disagreed Rav Moshe. They didn't necessarily say Rav Moshe is wrong, but it's clear from their assumptions that they did not go in that direction. So I thought that was also interesting. And I think it's also educationally valuable that even great Poskim, who we value and cherish, and who we consider as very sensitive and moral paragons, they also were shaped by the assumptions of their time. And we know that as a fact. And this is an interesting example of that. And even if we accept many of their psakim on, on certain sociological issues which assume a certain uh, perspective, you have to at least analyze that perspective in order to, you know, either do you go with that or you don't go with that. So I think that's a... And also it's just honest, you know, and I think as you opened your remarks, there are still people within our community who I think would identify with that. Maybe they might not say it in public because it's not so PC anymore, but there are many people um, who would identify with this approach and would articulate that approach uh, in maybe in different language. And so it is part of the reality that we are, you know, that people who are in the Orthodox community do have to assume that there are people like that and you have to engage with that. Understood. Uh, one of the views from that time that I... I don't think you address, and I was curious about, Rabbi Lamb, I believe, wrote an article, yeah. maybe it was in the 70s, around the time of Ramosha, where he has a, a bit of a different perspective and focuses on kind of the status of Ones and, yes. and that. So I was curious why that, why you didn't uh, address that, yeah. and, and, or, so, or if that's more about how we treat... Yeah, I thought, I, I, I did think about that. I think it was more Rabbi Lamb was kind of going out to make a suggestion about how we should treat people and address people and, and engage with people. And so it didn't really address as much, from my perspective, the theological perspective. And ultimately, in the latter part of the paper, when I came to Rabbi Riskin, who uses that in a much farther, far-reaching way, I thought that was a better place to bring that up. Okay, so let's now discuss your preferred view. Um, and its theological benefits and some of its drawbacks that you acknowledge. I, I think you call it the low plug yes. view. So give us a little bit of the background so it, on that. It's a combination. Uh, I tried to you know tease out from other people who um, there definitely are rational arguments for why 
um, a system, and again, whenever we get into the world of ta'amei ha-mitzvot, trying to understand the rationality behind God's will, um, you're always in the area of speculation. And so we have to admit that right up front. But, you know, one could clearly say um, or could clearly posit that part of God's purpose, and it's very clear from the early parts of Genesis, is that God is interested in a, in a, in a world that's populated, in a world that uh, men and women are created complementarily to engage in procreation, to come together, to come together and perpetuate the species, and then to pass down certain values in that unit as a family to their children. And that that's a kind of agenda of the preferred, the privileged view that the Torah sees to, to marriage and procreation. And that that's what the Torah wants to achieve in its, so to speak, in it, and, 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 and the biology of how God created the world clearly points in that direction at the same time. And um, human beings have all kinds of urges. And at the same time, uh, there's a recognition that homosexuality, while it may fulfill certain needs of the person, it certainly undermines if you have people uh, who are married, if men express their sexual desire, if men express their sexual uh, pleasure being fulfilled outside of the marriage, that can undermine the whole institution of procreation, or can undermine the whole institution of marriage and the perpetuation of the species and the perpetuation of the covenantal uh, family slash people that God wants to create. And therefore... That's one assumption. Assumption number two is if you believe uh, that that is the purpose of ultimately the goal of the Torah's restrictions. And in the ancient world, there was no such thing as a monogamous homosexual union. It just didn't exist. That notion is a very modern notion, just like identity, sexual identity. It is a very modern notion. The Torah speaks about actions. Halakha speaks about acting in a certain way. People took in the ancient world homosexual... Um, lovers, etc., in order to fulfill some need that they had, but it wasn't part, they weren't creating a house with a little picket fence and the dog and the car. That just wasn't the reality. And so that has a way of undermining the, re, uh, the reality of marriage. And if that's true, then the Torah makes an absolute statement of, of, of pro prohibiting, explicitly the Torah talks about male homosexuality, and it it, it explicitly forbids engaging those actions as they undermine the privileged purpose that the Torah wants to achieve in terms of procreation and marriage and perpetuation of the species, perpetuation of the people, perpetuation of values, etc. If that's true, then the Torah has a kind of low plug, meaning even in all circumstances, even if they, and there was no such thing in the ancient world, of a forbidden, of a, excuse me, of a monogamous, homosexual union that reflected commitment and love, the Torah says, yeah, maybe that's theoretically, the Torah could have said, that's not really what we're talking about, but under all circumstances, the law is general, as the Rambam articulates in uh, Moreh HaNevuchim, in chapter in section 3, chapter 34, whatever it is, and it's very clear that the Torah has to make kind of absolute fences and absolute gdarim and absolute statements, and therefore, there is a small percentage of people who will be harmed by that absolutism. 
And that's just become more to the fore in our culture in which the freedom to engage in those kind of relationships and create loving, monogamous, connected relationships exists. And so it's just come to the fore much more in our day and age when those relationships have come out in a way that they didn't in antiquity and they didn't exist. And so we have this dilemma very much. And so it doesn't change halakha on the ground. We don't have a Sanhedrin. We can't reinterpret psukim uh, to our desire, but it may take away some of the um, the sting of how we treat people, how we view people, and how we see people in terms of their standing before God. So what do you see, though, as some of the, the drawbacks here? What's what? What are some of the I things mean, that you aren't fully satisfied with right. from this perspective? So we're still, first of all, it's in the realm of conjecture. The Torah didn't articulate this. Number two, you still are left with the real pain that individuals are harmed by this. And it's not just one or two, but it's a, a leg, it's, you know, it's a significant number. We know whatever it is, 3%, 4%, 5%, five, maybe even more in every community. And it, 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 it yields a, a situation on the ground which is extremely difficult for many people to live with. And the, as the Chazal say, dimata shukim, the, the, the pain of those who are suffering, like mamzerim, there's a yield here that has created a real, real, uh, difficult issue on the ground. And we have lots of, lots of pain and lots of suffering for those who want to be part of the community and not walk away from the community and the tradition. And so, yes, it may be a theological statement, but there's still a tremendous amount of psychological and real pain that is still here with us. But Sachakol, when all things being considered, you feel like it's worthwhile to articulate this perspective. It's, it's the best we can do. In the world in which we live in, in this limited world in which we live in. Um, and, you know, and, 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 you know, so to speak, it is in that context, it lets us, you know, imagine that as, and, and as Rabbi Riskin, who I think is the most daring here, is willing to say explicitly that the Torah really envisioned the prohibition on people who were, you know, who were dabbling, who were, you know, really heterosexual or bisexual, but chose to engage in this on the side to fulfill certain needs. And it didn't really address people who are Anus Rahmanapatre, as you mentioned. It doesn't change the fact that the way the law was constructed is in to include all cases because that's the nature of law. It can't go into every specific thing, but it does at least raise the possibility that God certainly, um, you know, doesn't see uh, and, and view these people in the same way that maybe other, you know, that in the past people have thought about it. Given that this is uh, where you've arrived in terms of the, the theological perspective, I guess I want to follow up with a question that you referenced and, and give a little bit of a, of a chuckle when you said it, but it's something that students talk about with me a lot on the women's issue, and you referenced it here. And I wonder how much this plays into kind of our theological explanation of it. And that is, what do we envision going forward? What do we see in a messianic age? Correct. Do we... And how do we speak about that in terms of saying with humility, we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but we can have aspirations. And then the question becomes, how much should we be working to make that a reality? Correct. As opposed to saying, well, we're not Sanhedrin, we can't do it. Right. I agree with you. Um, I think 
I am very uh, moved and uh, I'm very I'm very much uh, committed to the the view that Rav Cook articulated in one of his early books that was printed just recently, uh, uh, Hador, which was his kind of Morenevuchim, where he talks about how the Sanhedrin, if it feels in its day and age, just as it did in the time when it did have that authority to reinterpret Psukim, given the authority by the Halakha itself, given all kinds of understandings of the Pasuk, the Pasuk was neutralized for this purpose, for that. I'm just, I'm not using, I'm not judging, I'm just making a fact. When we come to things like Ben Soro Morer or certain uh, capital punishments, that the result of the Halakha was that it limited the scope of those problematic, quote-unquote, in quotes, uh, halachot to very narrow circumstances. So Rav Kook says that one day the Sanhedrin, if it decides in its wisdom, it will be able to apply the, the laws and the midot, the, the, the mechanisms of the halakha, to reinterpret psukim in a way that fits into its understanding of Torah in its deepest sense, and its general sense of its understanding. And I can envision, if there would be a Sanhedrin again, that maybe we could reinterpret the psukim along the lines of, again, I'm not saying to do that, we don't have that, but along the lines that, to make our explicit what has been implicit in this theological rationale. It could be. It could be possible. And given that it could be possible, I believe that that may affect how we approach many of the practical issues and how and our attitude to people. Because maybe that will also help us understand and see how we approach people who are not the same in, you know, in the same categories as what maybe the Torah was really driving at. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's speculation, it's speculative, but it's possible. I want to thank you, Natty, for uh, spending some time with us today and for your work on this subject. Now, well over a decade of work on both the pastoral pieces, the community inclusiveness piece, and the theological perspective. This is a challenging topic, and rather than just saying it's somebody else's challenge to deal with, like in many other ways, in many other uh, challenges that the Orthodox community faces, you've really taken a leadership role, and we are indebted to you for that. I want to thank you for joining us. I want to encourage everyone to check out all of our previous podcasts. This is the fifth podcast in our Grand Conversation podcast series, and please read uh, Rabbi Helfgott's paper in this month's edition of Inside the Conversation. With that, have a good day, everyone.